This audio is from South Fellowship Church. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit southfellowship.org. All right, let's pray. Um, Jesus, we are we're open. Holy Spirit, we're inviting you. Would you stir up uh, in the corners of our heart things that we're not even aware of right now? Lord, would you teach us uh, truth that would bring about um, our freedom today and your glory as we follow you? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. As you um, are now aware of, uh, because of the announcement and the huge tub of water on our stage, we are celebrating baptisms at the end of the service. Um, If you are a follower of Jesus and have not yet been baptized, I would propose to you that January 26, 2014 is your day. So um, would you pray about that and ask God if, if that's a step of faith he's asking you to take if you are a follower of Christ and haven't yet been baptized? There's a, uh, a few inventions that I've become aware of now that I'm a father that I previously didn't know were, were there. Um, most of them are in the food category. Um, and, and so before I had kids, I didn't know that they made a thing called squeezable yogurt. It's yogurt in a tube. And I'm starting to wonder, as I've gone on in fatherhood a little bit, I'm starting to wonder how much R&D actually goes into the development of these types of foods for kids. Because here's what, if you have young kids or or, or have in the um, uh, squeezable yogurt era, here's what you know. You hand your kids a packet of squeezable yogurt, and what do they do? They squeeze it. And it blasts everywhere. I mean, it's just, um, the second invention I've become aware of is um, the juice box. Now, here's the thing. You, you, you try to get that straw out of there. Good luck. Good luck. I mean, if you're still thinking you're sanctified after you get that straw out of there, praise be to God. But you get that straw out of there, and then you get it in that tiny little hole, and you hand it to your kids, and what do they do? Immediately, they squeeze it. There's no way to hold this thing without blasting it all over yourself and turning it into a geyser. I mean, it just squirts straight up in the air. And as a parent, you're sitting there going, there's got to be a better way. Uh, My daughter is notorious for, uh, and she's not just tethered to squeezable yogurt and juice boxes. She will make a mess out of any and everything. We call Avery um, our dirty bird, affectionately termed, because she can make a mess out of anything. No pair of clothing is safe in our house when she's around anywhere period. I was getting upset with her the other day. And um, I'm like, Avery, are you serious? How did you get spaghetti sauce in your hair? And not just like the front of your hair, but the back of your hair. How did that happen? And she starts to cry and she says, I'm sorry, daddy. And she comes and she sits over on my lap and we have a conversation and she's not intentionally doing it. And so I work with her. I was thinking about that as I read our passage of study this week, and we have a God who works with us. And, and hey, can, if we can just be honest for a moment today, isn't, isn't, aren't we all, in a way, the proverbial dirty bird? I mean, here's what the Bible teaches, is that sin is an offense against God, and it's a stain on us, and that apart from the work of Jesus, we are hopeless and doomed because of the fact that we are dirty. Even our good deeds it describes as filthy rags. Dirty. But, but, 
as followers of Christ, we know and we sing and we declare to each other and we remind each other every time we're together that, that we are under the blood of Jesus. And if you've been around here um, at all lately, you know we love and soak in and relish the grace of God. It is our only hope. Now, in light of that, the question becomes, when we walk in disobedience, when we walk in sin, when we walk in dirtiness, what do we do as followers of Jesus? Is there anything that we need to do in order to be made right with God? Well, Apart from faith in Jesus, the Bible would say no. I grew up in a church where we read confession every week. It was a Presbyterian church. It was a great church. And every week we would read, you know, God, I'm sorry for the things that I've done. And then there was this dramatic pause and maybe a drum roll somewhere. And the things that I've left undone. And we read it every week. And after I became a follower of Jesus and started to realize, listen, um, God has already forgiven my sin. What part does confession play in my life as a believer? You ever wondered that? I mean, now that we are forgiven and when we put faith in Jesus, you are. You know, your past, present, future sins forgiven under his blood, paid for, nailed to the cross, in whole. So what part does confession play in the life of a believer? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked that. I think it is the hidden gem for the evangelical who doesn't talk a lot about confession. I think it's the hidden gem in God's invitation to us to open ourselves for him to tune our heart. And if we're not engaging in this practice, this discipline that we call confession. I think in many ways, we're robbing ourselves of much of the joy that Jesus intends for us to walk in. Let me show you uh, what Paul writes to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. That's where we're going to be camping out today, and we're going to ask the question, God, how do you tune our heart through confession? Through confession of sin, through admitting of sin that we are already forgiven for, how do you reach inside and tune the soul in order to walk more in your goodness and your joy and your mercy and your beauty in light of confession? 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 8. Sorry, 2 Corinthians 7. You're with me. Praise be to God. A few of you said 7, 7. Yeah, I'm in seven. Thank you. 2 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 8. Paul writes, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, quick time out, um, 2 Corinthians is down the line in a series of letters that have been written back between Paul and the church at Corinth. Paul wrote them a letter. They wrote one back. Paul wrote another letter. The assumption is they wrote another one back. And so something that Paul wrote made them grieved. It made them sorrowful. He says, I did not regret it. I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you only for a little while. So, so Paul's like, hey, at first when I heard that you were grieved or sorrowful or upset because of the letter I wrote, I was uh, taken back. I was grieved. But now that I've thought about it a little bit more, I'm not. So this is the original hashtag sorry, not sorry. Okay? Sorry. 
not sorry. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved. So he goes, I didn't like that part of it, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Now, before we move on, we need to make a few observations about this text. Let me ask a question. Is there any place in the forgiven believer's life for grief over sin? Yes. Yes, there is. Because we're under the blood of Christ, because we're washed clean, that does not put us in a different category to not then look at our own lives and say, God, the, the, the way that I'm walking, the way that I'm living, the way that I'm treating my spouse or my kids or the way that I'm driving, whatever the case may be, is still an offense to your holiness. There's a place for us as followers of Jesus to look at our lives, to take some, some um, self-evaluation and go, Lord, I haven't been walking in the way that you intended me to walk and to feel a sorrow over that. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But he doesn't leave us there. Here's where Paul continues. For godly grief, what's that word? Produces. Just time out right there. So here's what Paul's gonna write to the church at Corinth. I pointed out some things in you, some things that were off, some things that were wrong. If he is referring to 1 Corinthians, take your choice, okay? Because essentially the whole letter is, hey, listen, you're playing celebrity pastor games, and really this is all about Jesus, and really there's division in the church, so you're under the blood of Christ, and your marriages are a little bit messed up, and, you're, and he could just take your choice, what offended them? But he says, what happened was that the sorrow that welled up in your soul because of the sin that Paul revealed, produced. Produced. It, it tilled the soil of your soul to walk more in the goodness and grace and mercy of God. Paul says, I'm not, I'm not sorry. I'm not sorry that I offended you a little bit. I'm not sorry that you were hurt. Why? Because God used that to produce a picture like a farmer walking through a field and tilling ground and planting seed. Did you know that godly sorrow can work the same way in the life of the believer? Even though you're forgiven, even though you're washed clean, even though you're pure and spotless before the throne of God, Paul would say it's a good thing when we look at our sin in light of who God is to say back to him, wow, I have messed up and I'm grieved over that and so are you, God. So are you. I want to walk us through, over the next few minutes, uh, the way that he says this actually plays out in the life of the believer. The way that con confession and repentance, quote-unquote, produces, or to use our terminology in this series, the way that it tunes the human heart. And as I said before, I think it's the hidden gem that evangelicals have primarily ignored because of our appreciation of grace, I'm going to say today, these two things are not in conflict. I think they're great dance partners. In fact, one without the other probably is devastating. But both together, beautiful. Let's look at what Paul says. The first thing he says is that confession and repentance tune our heart only as we recognize and become aware of the sin in our life. 
Now, now here's the thing. I've told you this before, and I'll tell you it again. There's nobody that's better at lying to you than you. Nobody. I mean, we are professionals at it. We can, we can twist things, and we can turn things in our own heart and in our own mind to where we are completely oblivious and blind to the sin that's in our life. Any amens? Amen. The people who didn't say amen, you just don't know it yet. You, you, illustration, case in point. I was um, having lunch with a friend the other day, and we were eating away, um, and I had like a big uh, sauce uh, thing on the side of my mouth, and he goes, hey, Ryan, um, you got sauce on your mouth. I'm like, thank you. Thank you that we didn't go on in this whole conversation, and then I get to the bathroom afterwards and go, I look like a moron. Thank you for, for pointing that out to me, for, for bringing that to light. And I think that's the way that the Holy Spirit, and that is one of the Holy Spirit's role in the life of the believer, is to reveal, to draw to the surface the sin that's in our life. The already forgiven sin that's in our life. He wants us to see it. He wants us to know it. David, here's what, here's what David prays. I mean, if we'd be bold enough to pray this prayer, I'm convinced God loves to answer it. Search me, O God, and know my heart, he says. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God, I'm open. Would you search me? Would you know me? Would you tell me what you find in me? Wow, because we're so good at hiding from our own sin, I think it's a prayer that we need to pray often. God, stir up in me, what's going on? What's going on? How, have I, how, how am I walking in a way that may be offensive to you or, or painful to others or just, just not reaping the life that you designed me for? God, uh, search me, know me, and point me. See, I think we often fall into two different, uh, separate yet equally devastating categories when it comes to the sin in our life. One, we just ignore it completely. We just ignore it. We're just completely oblivious to it, or we rationalize it, and we say, well, it's not that bad, or it was an only a one-time thing, or I'm not as bad as so-and-so, right? And we love so-and-so, because we can measure against so-and-so and go, oh, come on. I mean, look at him. God, I must not be that bad. So we, we either ignore it or we sit in it. And we sulk in it. And we replay it over and over like a broken record in our head. I love it what Paul points out here. He says, um, you were grieved, though only for a while. It's awesome. See, godly grief isn't permanent. Godly grief is temporary, and it points us to something, and he's going to get there. Second thing I want to point out is that, one, confession tunes our heart through recognition first, and two, through remorse. That's where this word grief comes in. It literally means a sadness or a great sorrow. It's the same thing that Isaiah expresses before the throne of God when he says, woe to me. Woe to me, I'm in trouble. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips in Isaiah chapter 6. It's that moment of, say, of seeing the way that your sin has both affected you and affected other people in your life. 
And I think any true confession, true repentance needs to be marked by a remorse. A saying, God, one, I de-godded you in my life. I replaced you as something, with something else. <clears throat> Two, I hurt the people around me. Because, hey, just a quick time out. Your sin is never contained with you. You know that, right? Like there is a ripple effect and a trickle effect to our sin. For, for, the, for the guys who are, are caught up in pornography, that doesn't stay with you. It's a gift that keeps on giving to everybody around you. None of our sin stays with just us. It all trickles out. It all trickles out. And when we realize that, there's this sense of what he calls grief. A godly grief, even. Man, to know that you and I could prick the heart of God. I think that leads us to this, to remorse. It says, God, we are, we're sorry. We're sorry. And not in the way that often my kids apologize when I make them, right? <laughs> Ethan, you just hit Avery over the head. Go tell her you're sorry. I'm sorry. You know, it's like, check, done. And isn't that the way that confession often works? Check, done. We're okay now. Uh, now the slate's wiped clean. Well, it already was wiped clean. So then what's the act of confession actually for? God does something in our soul when we actually realize, wow, my actions have affected somebody else negatively, myself negatively, etc. So they're grieved. He goes on and he writes this. For godly grief produces a repentance. Repentance. Now, here's the word. That word gets a really bad rap. I was on college campuses for um, a, a number of times where I saw people holding a sign that said, repent. Big letters. Sinners, repent. And it was this sort of um, hard, hard uh, heavy-handed declaration that there's something off and there's something wrong and you need to do this right away unless... And repentance in the Bible was always a beautiful invitation. It was always God saying, there's a better way. There's a better way. Um, so Martin Luther, when he initiates what turned out to be the Protestant Reformation, wasn't his intention, but it was the trickle effect of what happened. He, he nailed 95 theses on, a, on the Wittenberg door. The very first thesis that he wrote to the Catholic Church at the time was the entire life of believers is to be one of repentance. It was this beautiful invitation. Uh, repentance, the word, it literally means to change one's attitude or one's way of thinking in a way that changes the way that we live. That's what it means. To change one's mind. <laughs> What we believe, we replace lies with truth and then walk in freedom. That's repentance. That's repentance. And what Paul would say is that recognition of our sin leads to remorse over our sin, which leads us to repent of our sin. Now, let me point out three things that are necessary for us to walk in 
repentance. And I think these are ways that God reaches down and starts to tune our heart and soul through this discipline of confession. First thing that's necessary is honesty. Honesty. God, this is really who I am. This is really what I've done. And I know who you are in light of that. And I'm an open book to you, God. I'm honest and I know I've messed up. Honesty. You you know what? You will never be perfect this side of heaven. Never. Any amens? But you can be honest. You can be honest. And I think, I think that God is more interested, that there's more freedom found in our honesty than than there is in our attempt at perfection that he actually starts to loosen the chains on our souls as we go to him and say, God, this is really who I am. This is really what I've done. In light of who you are, would you speak? Would you speak? The second thing that repentance requires is honesty and analysis. This is hard work. This isn't just I repent and you turn and go a different way. This is really diving in and thinking about the internal workings in your heart and in your mind to go, all right, why do I lash out at my kids so much? Why do I care so much about what people think of me? Why does this addiction have its claws in me in a way where I just can't get free? Why? And you see, as you start to go down, Layer upon layer upon layer, at the base of it all, what you will find every single time is some disbelief in the goodness and grace and mercy of God and something else on the throne of your heart. There's something that you value more. If you go down deep enough every single time, that's what you find. And in order to change our mind, we need to come to terms with what we're thinking and the lies that we're believing. And and God does a great work in us when we uh, reprogram, retrain, renew our mind, to quote Romans, with the truth of who he is and what he's done. So honesty, analysis, and then redirection. See, repentance that does not lead us into a new way of living because of a new way of thinking is not true repentance. It's not. It needs to show up in the way that we walk. It needs to show up in the way that we move. It needs to show up in the words that come out of our mouth. Otherwise, it's not biblical, true repentance. It's the recalibrating of the way that we walk and the way that we live. It's the, um, if you uh, were uh, an early adapter to Apple Maps on your iPhone, you know that thing got you lost all the time. I mean, you're looking at it going, I put in this address and I'm in an open field. Why is that? You revert back to Google Maps and Google Maps gets you where you need to go. It's that redirecting. It's the, it's the uh, analyzation of a lie that was believed and inputting truth and saying, all right, now get me, God, where you designed me to go. That's repentance. And see, the key truth is we get to see the beginning of grace. These little seeds that God drops in, and it's the grace frees us to change, to be different. Well, he goes on. He says, godly grief produces. So that sorrow in us tills the field, and it produces a repentance, a change in mind that leads to a change in direction, that leads us to salvation. Now, he's writing to a group of people that are already believers 
These are, these are Christians that he's writing to, and he says that your godly grief produced a repentance that leads you to salvation. That word salvation simply means deliverance. And so what he says is really a beautiful thing, and I think one of the things that we've missed when we've talked about confession and repentance, and it's this. Will you look up at me for just a second? That your sin is forgiven when you put faith in Jesus. The punishment of sin is removed at that moment of faith in Christ. The power of sin in your life is removed at confession. The punishment of sin, gone at salvation. The power of sin, you're freed from it at confession. And I think that our tendency to say, well, because God's already forgiven it, I don't need to talk about it, and I don't need to admit it, and I don't need to have any remorse over it, it's already done, taken care of, gone, has actually inhibited us from walking in the freedom that God has for us. Because a recognition of our sin that leads to a remorse over our sin and leads us to repentance actually produces a release, salvation, a deliverance. From the things, the sin that's held us back. See, see, here's the thing. Confession is a lot more for you than it is for God. All right, I said it. You can tweet it out out of context if you want. But um, it's a lot more for you than it is for God. I mean, initial confession of faith. Uh, John chapter 1 says that, that whoever confesses their sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's initially what we do upon professing, professing faith in Jesus. We're invited into the kingdom of God. We are deemed pure, spotless, holy, blameless because of the imputed righteousness that God gives us. And that's all true. That's all true. But that act of repentance, of coming to God, Paul says that grief produced deliverance. So let me propose to you that if there's some sin in your life that, that just sort of is like a merry-go-round keeps coming back around to you and you just can't seem to get a hold of it, may, may I invite you into this process that Paul unpacks for the Corinthian church? Recognition, remorse, repentance. And he says, and God brings release. Produces, godly grief produces in you. One of the powers that you see at work in organizations like AA is that initial first step for people to say, my name is so-and-so, and I am an alcoholic. It's that bringing it into the light, getting it into the light, where when we do that, God starts to speak freedom into the things that have chained us. Sorry, I sang really hard during our worship set, and I shouldn't have, but I couldn't help myself. So James, James writes to the church, and he says this, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be forgiven. No. He doesn't say confess your sins so that you're forgiven. You're already forgiven. Confess your sins, get them out in the open, one to another, and so that God brings about 
healing, restoration, wholeness of life. That's his design for you. And that's why I called it the hidden gem of God tuning our hearts in evangelicalism because we just don't talk about it a whole lot. He says there's healing when it's brought into the light. You see, grace not only frees us from the punishment of sin, but it, it also frees us from the power. So I wonder if there's anything, even as we talk today, that the Holy Spirit might stir up in your soul, might, might rise to the surface where you go, you know what, I think, God, I, we do need to have a conversation about this, or something that's been going on for a long time that you've conveniently ignored or rationalized or just gotten busy enough that you've forgotten about. Guilty that what might he stir and bring to the surface that he might put his finger on and remind you, you, you are already forgiven for that. Now walk in it. Now walk in it. So he says, godly grief produces a repentance, a change of mind that leads to a change in action, that leads to salvation, deliverance, and then he says, he was this great line, without regret. All right, so the, one of the litmus tests of confession for the believer is, and repentance for the believer is, is there a residue of regret in your soul? Because what Paul says is, it shouldn't be there. It shouldn't be there. Here's where he would say. See, see you, thought, you thought it was going to start with an R. And then I just threw that curveball at you. It went R, 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 F, freedom. And there were R words, but I wanted this to stand out because you need to know this is what godly grief produces when we go through the godly process of bringing it to him and realizing it's already under grace. It was under his mercy already. And now we get to walk in that. And he says it leaves no regret. It leaves no regret. I love the way that the author Bill Thrall puts it when he says this. When grace introduces us to repentance, the two become best friends. When anything else introduces us to repentance, it feels like the warden has come to lock us up. But when grace gets involved, the truths of repentance reveal a fabulous world of life, freeing beauty. So, may the kindness of God, not the harshness of God, not the justice of God, not that you fill in any other attribute of, may his kindness, Romans chapter 2, verse 4, lead you to repentance. His desire is that we would find life in the reality that as far as the east is from the west, he's forgiven our sin from us. He's taken it away. So there's no room for regret. There's no room for, well, I really wish I would have. It's under his mercy. It's under his grace. And Paul says, and it's in the rear view mirror. Don't look back. See, here's the problem. Here's the problem is that we're so used to being programmed in our world, in, in marriages, in a relationship with our family, etc., where if something's done that's wrong, it's used. It's used as manipulation. Hey, well, you did this. 
And so now you owe me this. And a lot of people think that God interacts the same way, and it's just simply not true. His ethic is completely different. He says, based on nothing that you've done, I've offered you forgiveness. I've offered you grace. I've offered you mercy, and I'm inviting you to walk in it. See, the role of confession in the life of the believer, the role of repentance in the life of the believer is not to receive forgiveness from God. You already received that upon faith in him. The role of confession in the life of the believer is to be reminded that that's true. To stand under the proverbial waterfall of grace and say to God, God, thank you, thank you. I don't deserve it, and yet you shower it down. And then to definitively walk as people under that grace. You can't do it without confession, friend. You can't do it. You never, your your natural tendency is never to remember who you really are and what he's done to rescue you from who you really are. You'll forget. You'll forget. I think it is the way. Confession is, is the thing that actually I think will free us not only to walk in freedom individually, but corporately to make a difference in the world around us. I've been studying a little bit um, lately about revivals and how they take place. Do you know, I can't find one revival that's taken place by a group of churches or a church wondering how they can reach the world for Jesus. They don't don't start that way. They start with a group of people going and saying to God, would you search me? Would you know me? Would you show me if there's any offensive way in me and then lead me in the path of righteousness? That's how revivals start. By us saying to God, God, we are under your grace and mercy, and that's a good thing because we need it. Because we need it. And I wonder if God would do a revolution, even in your life, just as an individual, a revival in your life as an individual. And I want to propose to you that maybe it starts with that simple prayer that David prayed. God, would you search me? Would you know me? Would you put your finger on some things going on in my soul? And and would you dig in the caverns of my heart and pull that stuff out and reveal it in light of your mercy and your grace? And then, then, godly grief produces freedom for you to walk with Jesus. I pray that we wouldn't be a church or a people that miss out on one of God's greatest gifts to us, confessing our sin to him and confessing and sitting under the reality that that sin is forgiven under the blood of Jesus. Let me pray for you. Even now, I'm gonna, I just wanna ask the Holy Spirit to, to stir in you Before we go rushing off to what's next, I want to allow that word to just sort of resonate in your soul, to bounce around a little bit. So Holy Spirit, we invite you, search us, know us. What offensive ways are in us? 
Lord, are there any people that we've wronged that we need to make right with? Spirit, are there ways that we are walking in less than you designed us for? The things that we're angry about or bitter about or forgiveness we haven't offered. Would you stir it up in us? Would you cause us to run to the throne of grace? Mercy. To recognize that when Jesus died over 2,000 years ago, he died for that sin that we are struggling with right now. And Lord, as you reveal that to us and we are remorseful over it because it's robbed us and others of life, would there be a true repentance in our heart, a turning? And God, would you release from those chains. And God, we'd ask, would you invite us into the freedom of no regrets that your scriptures talk about and promise? Oh, please, Lord. We love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. This audio is from South Fellowship Church. Feel free to make copies of this message, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit us at southfellowship.org.